the first to admit that I have uttered the phrase on more than one occasion in this life that disco is dead, and I'm glad for it. Also, I will be among the first to admit that I ain't no John Travolta. I can't dance. Phil Collins famously sang a song like that once. Nonetheless, there's something, there's a little something about disco music, isn't there? It gets you moving a little bit in the morning, and this song takes us back to 1975. It was 49 years ago today that the Bee Gees began recording that song. As you know, Jive Talkin'. It would become their second chart topper in the United States. It went number five in the UK. But the reason I couldn't resist starting our day with a little Jive Talkin' today is because Barry Gibb admitted that his inspiration for the song came when his wife commented on the sound their car was making while they were crossing a bridge over Biscayne Bay into Miami. Gibbs' wife said, it's our drive talking. And thus came the inspiration for jive talking, which the Bee Gees began recording on this day in 19. 19- 75. It is seven minutes after nine on this Tuesday morning, the 30th of January. And on the phone with us already this morning, our good friend Andre will go straight to him. Good morning, sir. Well, good morning to you, Mike. It's, uh, thank you for taking my call so early. Um, but let's get to the point here because you got a busy show, busy people. Busy show for busy people. That's what my boss used to say. Good man, Andre. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, so get to the most important point today is I I got tickets for tonight, Mike. Oh, baby. I didn't know it was the London Knights. It's the me? London Knights. How am I going to behave? Dale Hunter over there, me across the glass. I can never get Tiger Williams from Vancouver, but you got, you know, Andre the Lion, a.k.a. Lion here. So I don't know. He's lucky I'm blind because I would give him that look. But <laughs> go Rangers, man. Go Rangers. All right, Andre, thank you very much for the call. We do have some Tuesday night hockey at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium. Paul Fixter and I will be on the air with your pregame show beginning at 6.35. And yes, it is the London Knights. The last time these two teams met, Kitchener and London, in London, more than 100 minutes in penalties were handed out, six fights. Oh, my goodness, the Kitchener Rangers lost another player to injury. Trent Swick was injured in that game in London. The night before, in Kitchener versus London, Philip Mashar of the Kitchener Rangers was injured. I'm not sure either of those players will be back tonight. But nonetheless, we got some Tuesday night hockey at the Memorial Auditorium. And if you can't be there like Andre's going to be there, you can join us right here on City News 570 for the broadcast. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, seven, All right, let's take a look at your Farwell Show 5 for this January the 30th. Ontario Health Minister and Deputy Premier Sylvia Jones is in Kitchener today. She's holding a news conference at 11.30 this morning. Number two, Flair Airlines, an ultra-low-cost carrier that flies out of the region of Waterloo International Airport, owes the federal government $67 million in unpaid taxes. Now, a Canada Revenue Agency spokesperson says, as a last resort, we may take additional legal collection actions 
such as seizing property or assets to protect the interests of the crown. But Flair says, don't worry about it. We've got a payment plan in place and the debt will not affect its operations, nor will any aircraft be seized. So again, in the immortal words of Mikey the Moose Reeves, our bus driver for the Kitchener Rangers, don't worry about it. So says Flair Airlines. Number three on your Farwell Show 5 for this Tuesday morning, Manulife is only going to cover about 260 prescription drugs at Loblaw-owned pharmacies, such as Shoppers Drug Mart. Experts say this is a move by insurance companies to drive down costs, but could leave patients with fewer options for their medicines. Number four on your Farwell Show 5 this morning, the federal government has announced it is seeking another pause on medical assistance in dying, or MAID, provisions that would cover those suffering solely from mental illness. Mark Holland is our federal health minister. What we're saying is that in order for somebody in that intractable situation uh, who is in uh, a mental health nightmare, uh, that, you know, after trying absolutely everything, uh, that that eventually they should have that right. But the system needs to be ready, and we need to get it right. And it's clear from the conversations we have that the system is at this time not ready and therefore need more time. This is the second time the government has sought to delay the expansion of MAID. And number five on your Farwell Show, five this morning for this Tuesday, January the 30th, the former Sonny's Drive-In Restaurant on Weber Street in Waterloo has been demolished. I played many a game of Ms. Pac-Man there while waiting for my burger to be made for me. And I'll tell you what, those iconic burger joints, you think Sonny's, you think Harmony Lunch... The times, they are changing. I'm not supposed to sing on the show. That is your Farwell Show 5 for this Tuesday morning. It is 9.12. I'm thinking of debuting a new feature on the show today. It occurred to me while I was driving home yesterday. We need to have a new feature called the Dumbass Driver of the Day. I'll tell you that story and get to Doug's call right after this on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Quickly to an email from Mike, who writes to Mike at 570news.com. Am I missing something? No rush anymore? Mikey, where you been? Where you been, buddy? It's January the 30th. When the new year began, things changed a wee bit here on the show. And now the beginning of the show is like a Forrest Gump box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Sometimes it's rush. Sometimes... Like today, it's the Bee Gees. We like to keep you on your toes around here at the program. 519-570-2545. Star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. Our phone lines open the minute we begin the show each and every day. Doug is with us this morning. Hello, Doug. Hello, Mike. How are you, my friend? Uh, not too bad. I'm glad I got through this time. A couple of times I've tried to get through my own fall. I waited too long. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway, uh, a couple of things that you were talking about uh, hockey, and, and Andre was on there. Uh, you know, over the years, and I've been watching the, the, the Rangers, uh, good Lord, 
old back in the mid-'80s. And, uh, you know, this is one of the best teams that they've ever had uh, in, in, that, in that rank. And you know something? Every good team that's going to go anywhere has to handle adversity. So this is going to be what they're going to have to handle. And I think they got the parts to do it. I'm really, really uh, – I'm, I'm excited to see what they're doing. Four games in a row to lose is not good, but they're going to – they're going to come out of it, and I think they're going to come out of it stronger for the, uh, for the experience. So, anyway, speaking of hockey, uh, I thought uh, you might like to know I'm, I'm going to check out the source of every, almost every hockey rule that's still on the books. It was written at, at the uh, dining room table at boarding house in Renfrew, Ontario, by Lester Patrick and his brother and a few other people. And uh, February 9th, I'm going to be in Renfrew, so I'm going to get to go see where, uh, where this all happened. So uh, I'm kind of excited about that, too. Um, oh, and your new feature? Go for it. Because heaven knows there is no end of, uh, of source material. And if I could be first, every, every dumbass that I have seen come around the roundabout without a signal light on is asking for trouble. You, if you, it, it's, it's, I was thinking, you know, people should think about making a left-hand turn. But then, wait a minute, they don't use the signal light to tell you that either. So there you go. Uh, it's crazy. I, I, have, I have had five near hits uh, just in the last week and a half of people coming from the, from the roundabout all the way around past you don't use their signal light. And it's absolutely stupid and dangerous. So there's, 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 your, first, there's your first candidate. All right, Doug, I appreciate the call. Uh, I'm somewhat ashamed to admit I am one of those dumbasses because I do not use my turn signal out of spite in a roundabout because I think our roundabouts are goofy and teeny-weeny and itty-bitty and annoying as all H-E-double hockey sticks. Nonetheless, Doug is paying attention this morning because I mentioned just before the break that maybe it's time to debut a new feature on this show. And my new feature was inspired by my drive home yesterday and then a follow-up email from Shelley. I'll get to that in just a quick moment. But Doug had a lot of there, there, including some talk about the adversity that the Kitchener Rangers are facing right now. They're up against some really good teams in this stretch of the schedule. They've been missing some key players due to injury and suspension. And yeah, they are sitting on a four-game losing streak, their longest of the season. I, too, expect them to rebound from this adversity as an even tighter group and better hockey club. We'll talk all about this following the game tonight on Rangers Talk when Paul Fixter and I stick around after the game, as we do after every home game, to talk to you about the game that was and the league in general. So, to the feature that I thought, you know what, and I'm not surprised Doug was quick to say you'll have plenty of source material if i were to decide for example to provide you a story of a dumbass driver of the day for me it was as i merged onto the expressway yesterday trussler road getting on 78 eastbound to head towards home now in fairness there was a truck pulling so it was a pickup truck pulling a trailer that had to pull off to the shoulder. So something was not going right there. And there was a long line of traffic working its way on this on-ramp onto 78 East. But for whatever reason, this long line couldn't get moving. And it turns out it was because somebody decided to get into the hammer lane and drive at about 80 kilometers per hour. It was something to behold. And I'm like, what is going on up here? 
But the real problem was, as if that wasn't, that driver driving in the hammer lane at 80 wasn't enough of a... Dumbass. That was the person then that got really frustrated and started weaving in and out of traffic in an effort to get around, well, not to drive the point home, but the... Dumbass. Driving in the left lane at 80 kilometers an hour. So two dumbasses do not make a smartass, if you know what I'm saying here. And the car that was weaving, quite frankly, to me, was the bigger on the road yesterday. So there is my example of the dumbass driver of the day. Shelly shared with me via email to Mike at 570news.com. I live on the corner of Ottawa and Keel Street in Kitchener. That's right there by the Concordia Club. Underrated lunches in there at the diner, by the way. Oh, my goodness gracious. Anyway, Ottawa and Keel and Kitchener. And I have seen several cars drive through the red light in the last few nights. Dang, I've notified police. Dang, by the way, was in Shelley's email. I've notified police. They said they will notify their officers in this area, really hoping another person does not get hit. Dang, people. Shelley. Thank you very much for the email, Shelley. And I think we just might have plenty of source material to create a new little feature we call the Dumbass Driver of the Day. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Where, oh, where does the time go anyway? We're just a couple of minutes away from 930 and an opportunity to get you an update from the City News Center. Then we'll dive into our conversations today. The first of which will be around the five former Team Canada junior hockey players who are facing charges connected to an alleged sexual assault in 2018. The thing about this story to date, I mean, obviously it's high profile. We take our hockey very seriously in this country. The entire incident brought to light a lot of things that I'm pretty sure very few of us are comfortable with around the game of hockey, this sort of slush fund that Hockey Canada was keeping to kind of pay hush money to people when these sorts of cases came to light, et cetera, et cetera. But outside of that, oh my goodness gracious, there is another side to the story, and that is the survivor's side, of course. And we're going to look at the story through that survivor's lens in our conversation coming up just after the 930 News. Also on the program today, Supportive Housing of Waterloo Region, which is an organization whose model I can really get behind. I I love what they do and how they do it for folks who might otherwise be homeless. They are preparing for the coldest night of the year. We'll talk about that in just a couple hours' time uh, at 11.30. Dancing with the Stars comes to Kitchener later this week, and it gives us an opportunity to take a look at dance in general, what it can mean for your child if she or he is involved in dance. We'll talk about that in 60 minutes from now at 10.30. And also, in just about a half an hour, 
specialists are now concerned about some provincial changes to hearing aid funding and how this may be impacting wait times. This is a legitimate health concern as well. So we'll hear from the president of the Association for Hearing Instrument Practitioners of Ontario just after 10 this morning. All of that still to come on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News. We know quite a bit, I think, about an alleged sexual assault in 2018 carried out by members of the World Junior Hockey Team for Canada. Again, these are the allegations, which came to light some time ago, which shone a spotlight on hockey culture and a number of other things within Hockey Canada Some big corporate sponsors removed funding. Federal funding was frozen. And now we move even further into this case. And five players playing pro hockey are expected to surrender to police in London who will hold a news conference, we are told, next Monday to give us more information on what has led to these charges. But all of this so far has been from the perspective of the game of hockey, its culture, and the players involved in this alleged assault. There is, of course, another side to this story, and one I'm not sure we're talking about enough, but Bailey Reed will help us in this regard. Bailey is the co-founder of The Spark Strategy and joins us for a conversation. Bailey, good morning. Good morning. How do you view this case from the, or through the eyes of the survivor and and the difficulty with which this person has to move forward through this quote unquote justice system in Canada. I mean, I think when I consider what it takes to report sexual violence to police and you know what it looks like to go through the court system, you know, I always think survivors who do choose that route are so courageous. It's a really difficult system to navigate. And uh, particularly in in very public cases, um, you know, that's where it becomes not even just the difficulty of the, the justice system itself, but then all of, you know, the commentary and the backlash that a survivor may experience for going public. I can't help but think this would be at least one of the reasons and maybe the primary reason why assaults like this go dramatically underreported. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, accountability means different things to different survivors. And I always uh, empower survivors to, to decide what they're looking for when they think about what healing and accountability looks like for them. But we know that, I mean, I think the the high-level estimation is that 8 to 10% of sexual assaults are reported to police. And we know that only a very small portion of them actually end in a conviction. So the justice system itself is actually not providing justice to a lot of survivors. What might we be able to do, Bailey, to change this, to provide this 
level of justice to survivors? Uh, I mean, I think one of the questions is, again, if if accountability to a survivor really means that they want to see a criminal um, conviction, then we have to think about what it looks like to report sexual violence in Canada and, you know, the, the burden of proof and all of these things that are tenets of our criminal justice system in no way reflect the realities of sexual violence and consent. And so, I mean, that is... That, it's almost like it needs its own court system. So similar to a drug court or a mental health court model where we've changed some of those really key tenants, I think that might be something to do. But also recognizing that a criminal conviction maybe isn't accountability for a lot of survivors. So offering alternatives to what that looks like. Um, so understanding, you know, I think, you know, private settlements, civil, civil suits, where um, compensation is part of what accountability looks like. There are also sort of other models that are much more um, focused on transformation and healing and change. So those are those are options too. And then I think when we think about you know how do we how do we prevent this from happening in the first place, we really want to think about how do we look at culture change in some of these places where there is a deeply entrenched culture of masculinity and perhaps um, permissiveness or dismissiveness of sexual violence. Does a case that's as high profile as this one and the attention that's obviously going to be on it perhaps move the needle a little bit in that direction? Because as I said at the outset, I mean, the underlying culture within the game of hockey, the sport, is really been laid bare here and exposed. Is there perhaps mm-hmm. a silver lining here because of all the attention on this case? Um, well, <laughs> if I was if I was, you know, still young and naive, I might say I hope so or yes, but I think, you know, we've seen a lot of really public cases in different kinds of organizational cultures, including the music industry, including uh, the entertainment industry. Um, and I'm not sure we did move the needle or, you know, maybe we did for a time, but as a society, we're a little bit fickle and we have to remember that, you know, we're talking about deeply entrenched rape mythology that all of us really sort of internalize as we get older or and grow up. So, you know, these are messages that we've been hearing for our whole lives and it requires a really conscious effort to unlearn some of those rape myths um, and challenge that thinking to get to a place where we're really changing culture and moving the needle in a, in a positive way. I love the way you said that. And, and I, I want to be young and naive too, Bailey. I don't want to yeah. be old and cynical <laughs> like I am. <laughs> yeah. You, you talk, you used the word courage earlier, and, and this was a conversation at our dinner table at home last night. I, I can't imagine, after having already gone through at least part of this with uh, some sort of undisclosed settlement, uh, the, the woman who is the accuser here. I, I can't even imagine what she's gone through to take this step that charges are being laid and further to have to go through this process so publicly. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we talk about a lot. We And I know, you know, again, really public cases historically have focused on the behavior, the actions of the survivors and you know, questioning their motives and why did they come out and say it when they did. And, 
you know, all these different things. But, you know, when I think about this, when I think about how do we shift culture, I think this case, we're talking about a, a group of five to eight players in a room, right? That's a lot of young men in a room where somebody could have said, hold on. I don't know if this is the right thing to do. I'm not sure that this person is comfortable. You know, so I think when we push for accountability and that culture change, what we want to be thinking about is how do we hold people accountable that we're close with, and especially if they're in a situation where they may cause harm. And I think sometimes when we talk about causing harm, people get very caught up in the intent and like, well, you know, maybe nobody meant to hurt somebody or whatever. But the point is somebody did get hurt. So how do we make sure that we avoid those situations in the future? And as a team, how do you hold each other collectively accountable to do that? Bailey, I really appreciate your perspective on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Bailey Reed is the co-founder of The Spark Strategy, joining us to talk about the very high-profile case that is only just beginning in London. One player has surrendered to police so far to face charges in an alleged sexual assault dating back to 2018. We know there are four more still to come, and police in London will hold a media conference next Monday to share more information with us. Are you optimistic about this in any way, that it will move the needle? Is this going to be, does this mark the beginning of of a change to what is admittedly like I know you love the game I love the game but there is a culture problem within the sport of hockey and I I think we are in many ways to blame for that we have to hold ourselves accountable because of the way we elevate these young players simply because they're good at skating and shooting a puck right and all of the preferential treatment they get because of that Are you optimistic in any way that we're going to start? This will start us moving the needle to a meaningful change of hockey culture. Would love to hear your thoughts. As always on the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570. I think when we think about how do we prevent this from happening in the first place, we really want to think about how do we look at culture change in some of these places where there is a deeply entrenched culture of masculinity and perhaps permissiveness or dismissiveness of sexual violence. That is Bailey Reed, who joins us. Bailey, by the way, is the co-founder of The Spark Strategy, joins us this morning to look at a very high-profile case that has grabbed a lot of attention, and understandably so, because it centers around a game that we love and a culture that I am certain not all of us or even many of us anymore are all that comfortable with. We have been talking about hockey culture for quite some time now, and I think it came to its head a year, maybe a year and a bit ago, when all of, I shouldn't say all, because there's more to this story that's only just beginning, but many details emerged around a really concerning incident that was alleged to have happened at a hotel in London following the 2018 World Junior Hockey Championships and involving 
several players from Team Canada's entry in that tournament back in 2018. We learned of a payout undisclosed to a woman who had claimed she had been sexually assaulted. I would suspect, this would be my two cents on it, that the payout was done so that this woman wouldn't have to endure the media circus that is the upcoming court case. I don't know that to be sure. That's just what I'm throwing out there for conversation at this point. But with all of the attention being paid on this particular case, I think it's important that we look at it from the other end, right? Because there's been all kinds of speculation around the players that are involved. Alex Formanton is the one so far who has turned himself into London police. We'll learn more in the days ahead and then more than we would probably like to learn when the court case gets underway. But when all of this began coming to light, we heard about this or we learned about this fund that Hockey Canada kept to deal with cases just like this and pay them off and how that fund was built, where that money was coming from. There were sponsors that pulled out. There were funding freezes from the federal government, etc. Will this move the needle on the hockey culture? I don't know. But I get an email from Matt to Mike at 570news.com. says, I grew up playing minor hockey from the age of 8 through 17. And I've got to say, coaches have a voice that need to be heard. Coaches know what's going on. They might not be setting the culture, but they can change it. I think you're onto something there, Matt. And as our guest Bailey Reed said, this particular case that we're talking about now involves anywhere from five to eight players who may have been in that room at that time. And not a one of them was able to say, hang on a second, what's happening here is not right. Instead, we're talking about all that went wrong. Uh, Another interesting email from Katie only tangentially connected because it's about hockey and the upcoming all-star skills competition. Katie has an idea about this. She's got me thinking. I'll share that email right after this quick timeout. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Got an email from Katie to Mike at 570news.com. She writes, with the NHL All-Stars skills competition taking place this weekend, I wanted to know your thoughts on the skills competition prize of $1 million US. I'm all for the winner receiving a prize, but $1 million going to the winner really turns me off of the competition and the entire weekend. Why not give $1 million to the food bank of that player's team city? or some other charity of the player's choice. This just really irks me, and I think that the prize could have been better thought out. Why not reward the people that support these players who are already making, on average, $3.5 million a year? Just think of the positive impact that much money could have on a community. What a great incentive to win the skills competition. Would love to hear your thoughts, as always, Love your show. Katie, thank you for that. Love that you love it. Really appreciate those kind words. And my thoughts are, you're right on the money, pun intended. I mean, 
you should just come in here and host the show because you spell it out perfectly. How on earth, quite frankly, if I'm the athlete, the million dollars is even an incentive because the highest skilled players at the all-star competition are going to be the ones probably making more than three and a half million dollars a year. So there's that aspect of it as well. Uh, I could not agree more. And I've long kind of been on this train of thought when it comes to awards shows that recognize musical artists or movie stars, etc. Like, it's all well and good to be recognized for your work, but there's so much pomp and circumstance behind these things. And I'm like, where is the awards show for the doctor that saves the most lives or the researcher that comes up with the you know, next great advance in cancer care or cystic fibrosis care for somebody like me. Where are those awards shows? Why aren't we holding up these people and celebrating them and their accomplishments? Oh, good job skating around and shooting that puck, says the guy who also loves hockey. Make no mistake, but great point made by you, Katie. Thanks for listening to the show. And like I said, I couldn't agree more. My thoughts are exactly your thoughts. A charitable contribution of a million bucks would go a whole heck of a lot further than just lining the pocket of another all-star hockey player. All right, an update from the City News Centre, and then why are alarm bells being sounded about provincial changes to hearing aid funding? We'll talk about it coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. It is a healthcare story, but from a slightly different angle. Proposed changes here in Ontario could create a serious backlog for patients in need of hearing aids. Let's dive a little further into the story with Chris Arnold, who's the president of the Association for Hearing Instrument Practitioners of Ontario and also, of course, the owner of Arnold Hearing Centres. Chris, good morning. Good morning, Mike. What is the province proposing here by way of change to how things have been working? It was twofold. The first was um, the ADP grant form, which is where it offers a $500 grant per hearing aid every three to five years for anyone in Ontario that has an Ontario health card. Um, What they're proposing is to remove the prescriber line um, so that physicians didn't have to sign a prescription um, to get the grant. Um, They would rather just be audiologists that sign that part. But in Ontario, um, all hearing aids dispensed must come with a prescription. It's part of the Regulated Health Act. And in that Regulated Health Act, it says that both it could be a family physician or an audiologist. Um, The second part was they were looking to remove hearing instrument specialists as authorizers. And an authorizer is the one that does the hearing test and recommends the hearing aids. So authorizer and prescribing are two different things. Um, So by removing us, that would mean an audiologist would have to oversee every single hearing test and actually, sorry, perform the hearing test as well as recommend the hearing aid for every single hearing test that goes on in Ontario every day, which just isn't feasible. There's not enough of us. And so that, I think, by the sounds of it, obviously could lead to the backlog that has been discussed and also 
it, it sounds as though financially this could be rather burdensome for some patients. Yeah, and especially for those, there are many hearing clinics in remote areas or rural towns where there might be only one hearing clinic with one hearing instrument specialist. So if they're not able to get an audiologist to come out there or the patient isn't able to go where the audiologist is, that would restrict their access completely. And for the clinics that do have audiologists that are seeing patients now and all of them, that would create the backlog of months and could even go into years. And the other problem is, too, when you look at things like Ontario Disabilities, Ontario Works, uh, non-insured health benefits, which covers the Indigenous community, they all need the ADP grant first before they can access their additional benefits. So my worry is that it's going to help uh, create such a problem for them, too, that they also won't get access. I mentioned at the outset, Chris, that this is a, a health care story from a, a slightly different angle, because when we talk about health care, we tend to talk about the hospital or clinical setting and wait times there and surgeries and this, that and the other thing. But you could speak as well as anybody to the health impacts of one's hearing not being up to snuff and being unable to get the necessary supports to improve that hearing if possible. Right. And, you know, there's been a lot of studies lately that have linked hearing loss to to many things, such as, you know, um, other health comorbidities, such as diabetes and um, balance is a big one. So a lot of times, you know, we're putting this message across that improving your hearing will also help you, you know, stay away from these other different issues that could cause problems down the line and also hurt our health care system. As I understand it, when these changes were being proposed, uh, there was a, a bit of a, an outcry. And if you'll forgive the turn of phrase, the province has heard us here. And is, are these changes going to be put off for some time? Do we have a bit of a reprieve here to maybe get things right? Yes. And so on, it was, it was communicated to us on Wednesday. Uh, we were surprised by it. We weren't originally consulted on it. However, we did make a lot of noise Thursday and Friday, and it was heard. And I will give the, the Ministry of Health credit. Um, they worked over the weekend to put out a memo on Sunday evening to say that they're putting a pause on this right now. Um, so currently, hearing instrument specialists can still be authorizers, which is great. That was a first step. That's something we need to work on to get made permanently again. Um, however, the prescriber line part has still been removed, and physicians have still been told that they no longer have to sign the form, which then now complicates things because we're back at, okay, well, audiologists still need to oversee the hearing tests. Um, so we're working on that right now with various groups. If it's a pause, could this still happen? I mean, what do we have to be careful of here, Chris? We, my interpretation is that not a lot of people know what a hearing instrument specialist is and does, and I think a lot of people think that we just work alongside audiologists, and many of us do, but there's also many of us that own their own um, clinics and don't have any audiologists on staff, and that's what we've been allowed to do. We've been told for the past 30 years that we're good to be self-regulated. Um, AHIP is, we have our own bylaws, we have our own educational requirements, our own certification process. Um, so that's what we've been doing. So this is why it was such a big surprise to us. I, I'm glad that you were as willing as you have been, Chris, to speak up. And I know it comes from a place of deep care that you have, not only for uh, the patients that you serve at Arnold Hearing Centers, but for our community more broadly. And, and to that end, I wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit as we are a couple to a few weeks away now from Family Day and the Family Day giveaway that Arnold Hearing Centers is holding. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I have to kind of switch hats and take off my hat, hip hat and <laughs> put on my Arnold Hearing hat. But yes, it's something, the last couple of years we did it more of a, we called it a Here for the Holidays campaign. 
Um, but this year we decided, because usually people are quite busy during that time, and um, we wanted to really have an impact. So each of our locations, um, we were giving away a pair of hearing aids, but we're basing it on we're having people nominate someone and someone who they really believe is in need. And some of the stories we received are really heartbreaking, and it's going to be hard to choose. How can people nominate somebody and, you know, is it on the web, on a website somewhere or? Yep. If you go into arnoldhearing.ca on our website, there's a banner uh, just on the homepage there. You click on that and you can nominate. And, um, but if anyone else has any issues, they can go to any of our locations and we can guide them through that process too. I really appreciate you once again, speaking up on this, Chris, and making time for the show today. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks, Mike. Chris Arnold is the president of the Association for Hearing Instrument Practitioners of Ontario, or AHIP, as you heard Chris refer to it as. And he's also the owner of Arnold Hearing Centres, and they will once again be having the Family Day giveaway, which is the Arnold's way of tackling the widespread issue of hearing loss. And they'll be giving away six pairs of premium hearing aids at their locations in Guelph, Kitchener, Simcoe, Waterloo, and New Hamburg. Nominations are open until February the 15th. Family Day this year is on the 19th of February. You can go to arnoldhearing.ca and follow the instructions there if you'd like to make the nomination. To the point, though, in the matter at hand, the concern around these proposed provincial changes, how it could end up costing people more, not to mention creating backlogs Within the system. And I think we can all understand that one thing our health system does not need, whether it's in the hospital or clinical setting or in a hearing clinic, is another backlog. So it's it's great that Chris and his colleagues, who are hearing instrument practitioners in this province, were able to make enough noise that on a Sunday the health ministry drafted the memo saying, okay, this is on pause. And maybe it's kind of a shoot first, ask questions later kind of idea on the part of the province. It heard very quickly that there would be flaws with these proposed changes. Now it's on pause. Now we'll wait and see if what the province is hearing in regard to this affects any meaningful change. And these proposed changes to the system do not end up occurring because you don't want to further marginalize already marginalized communities. You certainly don't want this to become more financially burdensome to those who really need these hearing instruments for the betterment, the the better quality of their own lives, the betterment of their own health, right? And clearly, the last thing we need is another backlog somewhere within the health system. We're going to take a quick break. Speaking of those backlogs, within the health system. Uh, a rather incredible story that comes right out of our community. It was shared earlier today on social media, came across my desk, and I, I think it's an important story for us to hear. So it, it involves a young girl with appendicitis and what it took to get her from a waiting room into meaningful care to have her appendicitis treated. And it happened right here in the region of Waterloo. We'll share that story next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV.
Following a conversation we were just able to have with Chris Arnold, who's the president of the Association for Hearing Instrument Practitioners of Ontario and the owner of Arnold Hearing Centres. It's, I think, a, an aspect of our healthcare we don't think an awful lot about, right? We recognize when our hearing begins to fail us, but when we think about healthcare, right? I think we think about those hospital settings, emergency rooms, offload delays, surgery backlogs, etc. But if we do begin to recognize that our hearing is failing, we need the support of somebody like Chris or one of his colleagues who are hearing instrument practitioners in this province, you then would come to understand how any hearing loss impacts your overall health and overall quality of life. And so following that conversation about some proposed changes here in the province, which may increase wait times for hearing assistance, I'm thinking of a story that was brought to my attention this morning, and it's a story that comes right out of this community, uh, a parent and their child, and the child being in desperate need of medical care for appendicitis. And as I listened to this earlier today, I could, I think, feel it in my bones for this mother who couldn't get the care that was required for her child. So I'll let you hear a portion of it yourself and then you can decide for yourself how this makes you feel. But this happened right here in our community and it's not lost on me that in just over an hour from now, our health minister, Sylvia Jones, is going to be holding a media conference in Kitchener. Maybe Ms. Jones on her way to town in her black car service is listening in to local radio and she can hear this from mom Julia Malott. I'm recording this from outside Grand River Hospital in Kitchener where my daughter is currently having surgery. I haven't slept since Sunday morning. Neither has my child because we've been fighting with the hospital this entire time because we couldn't even get a bed for her to lie down in and relieve her pain for more than 15 hours. I have laid out the first 13 hours of my hospital stay from hell in a post I wrote in desperate rage quite literally from the St. Mary's Hospital waiting room. When I wrote that post, we had already confirmed that she had appendicitis and that she needed emergency surgery, and yet we were being asked to sit for an indefinite period of time in the ER waiting room, sitting, you know, pushing against one's appendix. See, we started our stay with an ER bed, but by 5 a.m. that morning, it was taken away from us because apparently somebody else needed it. So my daughter was forced to sit in the waiting room, putting more pressure on her appendix, which may very well have ruptured at any moment. And we do this for hours and hours just to get an ultrasound. And then we get the ultrasound and it's confirmed that she has appendicitis, but we continue to sit in that same chair for many hours more because there is no space to transfer her to the other hospital that can perform the surgery that she needs. So we have this sick child who's under immense pain, but rather than help her rest, she's left all night in the waiting room, sitting and causing more pain, and my requests for beds are denied. And my request to take her home to her own bed is also denied because she needs surgery. But they can't say whether surgery will come in minutes or hours or even that day. So we just keep sitting. And while she's sitting, she's on an IV line and she periodically gets pain suppressants when we complain enough to get a scraping of attention from the hospital staff. She's also starving and thirsty, but she's not allowed to have any food 
because she might have surgery at any moment. Or maybe never. And look, for those of us who live in Ontario, all I'm describing is the healthcare system that we know and hate. I just skimmed my experience here, but if you want the whole long story, then go find it in my post on Twitter. Now look, this isn't the fault of St. Mary's Hospital, and it isn't the fault of Grand River either. This isn't the doctors or the nurses or the triage volunteers. They were all working so hard. They were all overworked. I know that this building is filled with good, quality, caring healthcare professionals, but they had no breath for my daughter's need. To get my daughter actual care, I had to push and push and cross the lines of propriety that I am not proud to say I crossed. So to Premier Doug Ford and Health Minister Sylvia Jones and to every politician in this country, we can fix this. We need to fix this. Ford didn't break this, but neither did the Liberals before him. I'm 33 years old, and this healthcare system has been crumbling my entire life. It's not a Liberal problem, and it's not a Conservative problem. It's just a problem, and we would all benefit so much if we just took healthcare seriously, valued our nurses, valued our doctors, and gave them the resources and the staffing levels that they need to succeed. So I beg of you, can we please find a solution, real solutions, not talk and jabber about how 10 years from now we're going to build a new hospital. Let's do it now. Now. Let's solve it now because these are real lives. These are real families. These are real children who are suffering. These are real elderly folk who are suffering. And we can do better for all of them. And quite honestly, we have no excuse not to be. That's Julia Malott, who shared the experience of her daughter's Angelina's ordeal trying to get care for appendicitis. You can see that's about half of the video that Julia shared online. You can find it connected to my Twitter at Farwell underscore WR. It's a it's a pretty chilling story and we're working on getting Julia and her daughter Angelina onto the show tomorrow to talk more about it. But that story struck me so close to the bone that I thought I got to make sure I share it with you here on the show today. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. There has been quite a bit of activity on Twitter following Julia Malott's post earlier today about her experiences with her daughter at both St. Mary's and Grand River Hospital here in our community. And I really love the way that Julia ended her online essay, if you will, her video essay, by pointing out none of this is the fault of the hardworking, dedicated and incredibly talented healthcare professionals working within those hospitals. The problem is with the system itself. Based on the response so far on Twitter, I, I think this is something we may come back to during our open line 12 o'clock talkback hour today. And maybe you've got a story similar about the last time you were in need of healthcare and found yourself in an emergency department, for example. We are going to send you to the City News Centre for an update. And then Dancing with the Stars comes to the centre in the square this weekend. Sorry, I don't have tickets for you. It's already sold out. But it gives us an opportunity to talk about dance as one of those athletic initiatives, sporting initiatives, extracurricular activities you can get your child involved in and what it means to your child to be involved in dance, the benefits that they can gain from it. And maybe, just maybe, we can talk our next guest into auditioning for Dancing with the Stars. Not this weekend, unless she crashes the party, but nonetheless, that conversation is coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. 
I mentioned it before that update with Christine. Dancing with the Stars comes to the center in the square this Saturday. We have a dancing star in her own right in studio with us this morning. Veronica Magalon is a teacher with District Dance Company in Kitchener and sits across the studio table from me. Great to see you. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I want to start with Dancing with the Stars, and it's got the tour that's on stage at Centre in the Square. It's been going on for quite some time. A lot of people know it from TV. As somebody who dances as you do and have for so long, is this a, is this a good thing, or do you look at it and say, you know, it's a little bit, I don't know, less than realistic? How do you view Dancing with the Stars in general? Um, I personally love it. I think it also brings a lot of attention to dance as both a sport and an art. So I think it's great. I love the dancers personally, and it's cool that they're showing the behind the scenes of really teaching a celebrity how to do it, and it shows how much hard work goes behind the scenes. So I think it's great. I love that. And your point about the attention that it brings to dance in general is exactly why I'm so grateful to our new producer, uh, Veronica Bennett, who works on our show, and she brought this to my attention because otherwise I probably wouldn't have seen it. I'm the person, Veronica, that cannot dance, could never, but this maybe indicates then, and when you watch something like this on Dancing with the Stars, even somebody who starts from square one or square zero... Could you yes. teach them? Oh, for sure. For sure. We could get you in the studio, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one time I was in that studio, I was given the best job that could have been given to me. Yep. No dancing, just clean the mirrors, yeah. Farwell. That's up my alley. <laughs> Tell me about your journey through dance. What first got you involved in it? So my parents put me into dance because they actually took me to see the Nutcracker. And they said I sat right on the edge of my seat just in awe of the dancers. So from then on, it was just dance forever. And I think it's where I really thrived. I dabbled a little bit in volleyball in elementary school and piano, but I always chose dance at the end of the day. And still to this day, I'm connected with it by teaching. So it's really special. I started when I was three. I'm 24 now and I'm still involved, which is great. What was it like for you in those early days? What was it that captivated you about this? I really liked that, you know, you could set goals and always push for more. And I think that happens in every sport. But in dance, particularly, you get one pirouette. Now you want to get two. Like, there's just no end to what you can achieve. I also love music. So I think that's a big part that sets it apart from a lot of other sports. So for me, it was that. Yeah. How demanding is it on a young person's schedule or a family's schedule? I think this question, it really depends where you go, what studio you go to. And our studio really focused on quality versus quantity. So we were dancing about nine hours a week, which isn't so bad. Uh, Some studios are dancing 30 hours a week, but it definitely is demanding physically and mentally. It is also on your brain, memorizing routines, a great sport for that. So it's difficult, but... Not impossible. <laughs> right. That make, that's really interesting. So when you're memorizing routines, obviously you're, you're working on your craft, you're working on your art outside of the time you spend in the studio under right. formal instruction, right? For sure. sure. Yeah. So much time is spent, was spent in my basement practicing totally. And even connecting this to Dancing with the Stars a bit, I think you see some of the celebrities struggling the most with the memorization of routines more than some of the physical demand. I never would have thought of that even being a part of it. But of course it has to be. Yes. Nutcracker (laughs) is a ballet. Yes. 
And is that the kind of dance then that you did or have done? It was one of my favorite styles, for sure, ballet. I did almost everything. I was really bad at hip-hop, so eventually I tried to just not take that class anymore. But ballet was by far my favorite, jazz and lyrical. Ballroom something I actually haven't done. Um, it's definitely on my list to learn, but yes. I'm glad you mentioned some of those other styles because it only occurred to me when you mentioned the Nutcracker and, yeah, ballroom Salsa would be in there, right? Jazz, hip-hop, all of these different yeah. styles. How many... Do you, do you try to just master one, or do you, as you develop as a dancer, practice a variety of these different styles? For sure, a variety, and you have to do a variety to become the best dancer. If you're only training ballet, you don't have that swagger that hip-hop would bring you, right? But ballet, I would say, is definitely the core of dance. You really have to perfect ballet a lot of people hate it, which is unfortunate because it truly brings the backbone of dancer's technique. So I would say ballet is the most important, and then everything else just comes together. Jazz is more upbeat and tricks, and lyrical brings the emotion out of it. So if you can perfect all, you're really well-rounded. How much time do you have to spend stretching and or working on your flexibility generally to perform? Mm, generally. Well, I'd say if you give 100% at dance in classes, you don't have to spend too much outside of dance, but it's something that you should be stretching a little bit every day as a dancer. I mean, coming now from being 24, I, I should be stretching way more. <laughs> I'm like starting to lose it a little bit. But yes, I would say every day, at least a little bit. What led dance. you into teaching? Uh, I was really inspired by my dance teacher, and I also just wanted to stay connected. It was something that once I got into university, that was going to be very demanding. So to do teaching a little bit on the side was super special. And I did start teaching while I was dancing, and my first solo I choreographed was for my sister, which was really cool. And from then on, it was just very rewarding. It was challenging in a different way than dance was for me. So, and I like a good challenge. So, yeah, that's what kept me coming back. I love that. The first solo that you choreographed yes. was for your sister. So, not only are you working with the student on their dance moves, but you're also putting together the dance that they must then memorize all those different steps. <laughs> yes, exactly. I never thought of that aspect of oh, it. Oh, yeah. It's the fun aspect. You get to pick their music, pick their costume, and then choreograph the routine that's really fitting for them. So it's been rewarding. It's almost more stressful backstage watching them perform because I'm not in control when they're on stage, but it's very special. Do you remember your first time on stage and the feeling of that? Oh gosh, my first time on stage? I actually can't remember. It's so long ago, but the feeling definitely when I was younger was very nervous when you're backstage. Sometimes you're running through your routine and then you forget something and you're like, oh no, am I going to forget on stage? That was always the most stressful thing. But as I got older and more consistent, you know, I was able to manage that stress and really cultivate it into something powerful to bring me on stage and be confident. I'm not surprised it's hard to remember because you mentioned it at the age of three is when you saw the Nutcracker. So yes. we're talking 20 years here and you, you could have started dancing right away. I yes. mean, the right three, four years old, get out there and take up dance. 
Yeah, no, for sure. We have three-year-olds at our studio going in and dancing, and they are the cutest. I used to teach them as well. Now I don't. My sister does, but they just make your day, <laughs> honestly. I can believe that. Okay, I want to continue this conversation with Veronica Magalon, who's a teacher at District Dance Company in Kitchener. Dancing with the Stars comes to the center in the square this weekend, but we have our own dancing star in studio, and we'll continue the conversation around the benefits that Maybe you or your child can get from getting involved in dance. Stay with us on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Dancing with the Stars comes to Kitchener and our center in the square this weekend. Veronica Magalon is a teacher with the District Dance Company in Kitchener and has been dancing for more than 20 years herself. When you think back on this, Veronica, what has dance helped you do outside of, you know, movement, choreography, the athletic side of it? What, what benefits has it brought to your life? My gosh, I would say everything that I've been able to achieve and all the skills I've learned in life, honestly, were at dance. Dance was the first place that I learned to set goals and achieve them. And that I learned, too, that there's just no means or end to what you can achieve with your goals. So there was that work ethic definitely grew through dance. And, you know, I'm doing a lot right now, pursuing a CPA. I am (laughs) working I have a podcast with my friend. I'm teaching dance. So my work ethic really grew through dance. I I practiced every day in my basement until my mom would tell me to stop. So for sure, all those things I learned at dance. Yeah. Most people know that I'm, I'm a real hockey guy, love the sport. That's part of my job doing hockey broadcasting. And we talk a lot in hockey about the barriers to entry because it's getting more and more expensive. Mm-hmm. I get the sense, Veronica, that that may not be the case when it comes to dance, right? A leotard and some slippers maybe? I don't know, but it, it seems like a pretty low barrier. I would say it's hard because when it comes down to costumes and entry fees at competition, those can really rack up, honestly, and my poor parents. But at the end of the day, I also think it's a sport you can learn on your own somewhat. I think obviously you should be going to a studio, but there's so much that can be done at home in addition to the training that you do in the studio. So it doesn't have to be as crazy expensive as some of the other sports. What advice might you give when you talk about that studio and that, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, like the district dance company experience, what advice would you give to a parent maybe thinking of getting their child involved in dance? I would say definitely to look for somewhere that focuses on quality over quantity. Um, I see a lot of parents putting eight-year-olds into studios that are dancing 30 hours a week. And personally, I think you're going to burn your child out doing that. And you don't even know if it's something that they enjoy yet. So put them in somewhere, even if it's pretty competitive at first. You don't have to go right in full out to the competitive dancing. See if they like it and... Yeah. Also, my studio was just very facilitated, a respectful environment among the dancers. And really, they didn't talk about that you're competing against each other because dance is both a team and individual sport. It is a very interesting dynamic when you're competing against your friends. But they tried to say, you know, you're not competing. You're just in the same category. So, yeah, I would say those two things are really important when looking for a studio. 
Did you make friends in dance who remain your friends to this day? Oh, yes. Of course. So many. And even friends I competed against in the States, I have maintained friendships with now to this day. When you talked about that 30 hours a week idea, it brings me back to hockey and Mm -hmm. we hear a lot about this and... You know, every parent thinks that their kid's going to be the next Connor McDavid or Sidney right. Crosby, that kind of thing. So there's a little bit of that in dance, too, maybe, that some parents think, oh, you know, if I do this much work or my child does this much work, they're going to be the next greatest dancer. Yeah, not unless they love it. Right. So I think, yeah, you got to just ease them into it. Okay. <laughs> uh, you mentioned a podcast. Like, let's uh, shout it out. What's the <laughs> podcast all about? Where can we find it? It's called Golden Arts Club, and it's on Spotify and Apple. So... Yeah, it's super cool. We really focus on health and wellness, but we have done a couple episodes about dance. So if anyone's even more curious about positives and negatives, they can listen there. (laughs) Obviously, that's why you're so gifted at doing this, just sitting here and having a conversation. But that's different than the performances you would have been doing in dance. How have you found the experience of becoming a podcaster? Oh, my gosh. It was definitely something very new for me. Um, I was always a very quiet person and even I mentioned some to someone at work that I was coming on the radio today and he was like, wow, if you had told me this when you first started as a co-op with us, I would have never believed you. So I've definitely grown a lot through doing this podcast, which is special, but in dance, it was something that I feel like I always thrived in. I, I got a little bit nervous, but I'd go on stage and it, it was just where I belonged, whereas podcasting at first was something really I had to learn how to better myself in, which is why I did it with my friend. Yeah, so it's it's nice. I can't I can't help but think that some of the confidence that you would have gained from your time on stage dancing leads into these other things that you're doing today. For sure, it definitely does. And it, yeah, like I mentioned, right, dance is where I first really saw my goals get achieved, and that builds that confidence totally. I know that District Dance Company is operated by a lovely young woman who for some reason refused to come on the show today. But can you tell us a little bit more about the District Dance Company? Yes. So, I mean, this was the teacher that inspired me so much. Her name's Kelly Farwell, and she runs District Dance Company, which is honestly like a second home to so many dancers, which is really special. Everyone looks up to her. And even in teaching now, I just, I really tried to, you know, she was great at giving dancers a solo that was really like their thing so and that's been the hardest part I can't choreograph a routine that I would go out and do it has to be something that they could go out and do and do well so yeah that's great it's it's a big family everybody's really close it's a pretty small studio which I honestly think I love you get to go down the room more often in a class versus, you know, standing in a long line with hundreds of dancers. So, yeah. You know, it just occurred to me, Veronica, because you were talking about your schooling, right? Studying to become a CPA, working on your podcast, all of these things that have come from dance. We talk about the arts and culture community on this show quite a bit. What opportunities exist in dance like how difficult is it again going back to that hockey analogy not everybody becomes Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby or gets to the National Hockey League what sorts of opportunities exist professionally in Mm -hmm. dance if somebody wants to pursue it right oh my gosh there are definitely a ton and depends what you love you know if you're very into hip-hop you can go the commercial route and be dancing back up at uh, concerts for singers or doing music videos. If you love ballet, you could end up in the Nutcracker. You could end up on Broadway. You can teach dance. 
could be on Dancing with the Stars. So there's so many different opportunities, I would say, through dance. just depends on what you love. It's great to have you in the studio today to share these experiences. Uh, I hope it excites some people about dance because clearly it has done wonders for you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. My favorite topic, honestly. <laughs> well, we'll check out the podcast. Give us the name of it again. Yes. Uh, Golden Hearts Club. Golden Hearts Club. You'll find it on Apple and Spotify. Veronica Magalon is the host, and she's a teacher at the District Dance Company in Kitchener. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Just getting some information that our news center will no doubt provide details on in the next update in 60 seconds. But a 57-year-old man has been charged with second-degree murder in connection to a homicide last week in Cambridge. So one of those two shootings that we saw. There has been charges now laid in connection with one of them, a 57-year-old man. Again, more details on that coming up in our 11 a.m. update from the City News Centre. In about 30 minutes' time, we will be checking in with Supportive Housing of Waterloo, or SHOW, an organization that does a terrific job supporting some of our most vulnerable. We'll give you some insight into what they do and how they do it and how you can support their work. The 12 o'clock talk back hour with open lines from 12 until 1. And following this update from the City News Center, the Humane Society of Kitchener, Waterloo, and Stratford, Perth could use a little bit of help. They got some puppies. I wish I had more room in the house because the more dogs, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But we'll check in with our friends at the Humane Society right after this update on the City News Center. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Did somebody say puppies? Okay, then you have my attention. Oh my goodness, I love me some dogs. Not much of a cat guy, you know that. But I do love me some dogs. And that's just a part of the conversation we are fortunate enough to have now with our friends at the Humane Society of Kitchener-Waterloo in Stratford, Perth. Calla James is the Director of Community Engagement and Outreach there and joins the program this morning. Calla, good morning. Hi, Calla. Hi, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Uh, let's start with some puppies that you currently have in foster care and could use a permanent home for. Can you tell me more about them? We we have a lot of dogs on our website right now. <laughs> uh, just over 20 dogs available for adoption. And yes, we do have a number of puppies. We had a litter of nine that went up. A number have found their homes already, but there's still so many on our website right now. So you can check it out, kwsphumane.ca, and you can see all of their adorable photos and learn more information about them. How how does this number of dogs currently in your care compare to the number you might usually have at the shelter? So if we're talking last year, we had about 88 animals in care across both of our centers in foster care last year at this time. And this year we're at 140. So just under double the number. Uh, When we're talking about dogs in particular, we definitely have seen an increase over the last number of years. 
prior to the pandemic, people might have come in and they see the odd one or two that are available for adoption and would say to us, where are all the dogs? Uh, And that was common to find across Ontario shelters. Dog numbers were definitely lower. And as we've moved out of the pandemic, that has been a complete flip of the opposite. We are full with dogs all the time. Uh, we have you know, more dogs available than cats at the moment on our website available and ready to go for adoption. I can't tell you the last time that I have seen that uh, in my 11 years in the industry. So we're definitely finding it to be a much busier time for animals. I, I would suspect, Kala, that that is connected to what we heard about during the pandemic with people working from home more, etc., uh, four-legged companions became very popular. And then when things got back a little closer to normal, maybe they found they didn't have the time to care for that pet the way they thought or the way they had when they were, you know, doing work from home and schedules were a little bit different. Yes, we've definitely found that there's a lot of factors that have compounded all at the same time. You know, as we've moved out of the pandemic, we didn't find it in the pandemic. That's what a lot of media was reporting in other areas of the world that during the pandemic, people would be surrendering because they got sick or perhaps, you know, a family member lost their life. And so we didn't find that in the pandemic. But as we moved out, we definitely were finding those numbers to start increasing numbers of strays, numbers of large breed dogs who were lacking socialization, lacking training, um, had resource guarding or fear behaviors. And behaviors has definitely been one of the things that we've seen. And when you compound that with the economy and the cost of living, people are definitely calling us because they're struggling with those behaviors. They're struggling to feed their pet. They're struggling to cover medical bills for their pet. uh, And they're reaching out for help. When it comes to adoption, Calla, what is required on the part of the person or the family that wishes to adopt? The first thing we always let people know is if you're looking to adopt a pet, to do your research. If you've never had a dog or a cat or a rabbit or a gecko, because we adopt lizards, we adopt reptiles as well, uh, do your research and do, do your homework to see what type of pet would be a fit for my home, for my lifestyle, and really talk amongst your family members or those who live in your home about what would be most suitable. The second thing we want you to take take a look at is on our website, we have all of our animals posted and their bios. And within those bios, we will indicate needs of the pet. So there might be dogs who have things like food guarding, who wouldn't be suitable for a home with, you know, tiny children who are crawling on the floor, who are more inclined to put their hand in that food dish. And we really want you to take a look and see who would be a best fit for you. And when you're doing all of those things, you're not only determining what is a fit in my household, but what is my capacity from a care standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from supporting behavior standpoints. And of course, if you have any questions, you can always call us because we're here to walk you through it. Speaking of capacity, what about the capacity there at the Humane Society of Kitchener, Waterloo and Stratford, Perth, when you have about double the number of dogs from a year ago, et cetera, and all of these pets that have been surrendered, including lizards. How are you doing for capacity? Right now, you know, our numbers are a little bit lower. We do typically find that in the winter time. Um, you know, we are very busy. Obviously, 140 animals keeps us very busy. We're very fortunate that in the pandemic, we did grow our foster home numbers. And we are always looking to grow our foster home numbers. So if you'd like to become a foster parent, please call us. Uh, And those fosters help us to alleviate the space in the shelters. And that way, not only are we keeping animal stress levels low by being in a home, we're also keeping critical space open in our center so that if an emergency case comes in or we do have an influx of strays from our municipalities, we are able to accept them. 
Uh, last summer, we did report numerous times that we were over 240 animals in care. So we do we do have a little bit of that space now. But of course, when we're also talking about capacity, we have to think about things of surgery capacity and medical capacity and funding too. Uh, so there's lots of ways that we take a look at that. Fostering is an interesting angle to the work that you do and how people can support. And it comes up in our household quite a bit, Kala. I cannot tell a lie. Uh, my beloved thinks it would be a wonderful idea for me. I think I would have a hard time when the fostering part is over. But uh, that that is really it, what it's all about, right? Helping to care for an animal until their forever home can be found. Absolutely. And fostering is such a huge help for us here. As I just mentioned, for us to move a pet to a person's home really helps that pet in in their stress levels, just in their comfort. We try to make it as comfortable as possible in the shelter, but we know a couch is much more comfortable than a kennel. Uh, and when we also talk about you know that space, you're helping us to give space to those who need our urgent help. Fostering can be difficult. Of course, you get attached to those pets. You love them. But it is such a wonderful gift that you give them to give them a temporary landing spot until they can find their forever family. And those who can help us with those bottle baby kittens and feeding them around the clock or a dog that's waiting for a specialty surgery, it's just a wonderful thing to do for them. And again, it's a huge help for us. You mentioned funding earlier, Kala, and I know there is a Bake for the Animals fundraiser that is uh, coming up. Can you tell us more about it? Yes, Bake for the Animals is one of our signature events that we host every year. We are not government funded, so we are a registered charity and we rely on donors in our communities to fund all of the programs and services that we have here at the Humane Society. So Bake for the Animals is a wonderful event that helps with that. You can register online on our website, fire up your online bakery and collect donations from friends and family, and then you bake for those that donated to the cause. Other people also choose to do a bake sale instead. So they'll go to their work, they'll go to their hockey team, they'll go to school and they'll host a bake sale and donate those funds. And of course, if you don't want to bake, but you want to eat, you can follow our pastry path where you can find lots of local businesses who are getting involved. You can attend those businesses, purchase something where proceeds can come back to the Humane Society. And where can we find out more information about that and all of the other work you do? On our website, kwsphumane.ca, or you can come into either of our centers in Kitchener or Stratford. I'm just, I'm not going to lie, Kala, I'm multitasking right now. I'm, I'm looking at the dogs for adoption on your site as we uh, wrap up this conversation. I want them all. I wonder if there's room. What, I wonder what my beloved would say if I came home with like 13 dogs today. <laughs> uh, you know, I've tried that trick myself. So. <laughs> and if I can throw it out there, if you're looking on there, number one spot on there is Hazel. And I have to give her a shout out because she's been with us in care since last August. So if anybody is looking, please check out Hazel on our website. Calla, thank you so much for the work that you do and the time you've given us on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Calla James is the Director of Community Engagement and Outreach at the Humane Society of Kitchener-Waterloo and Stratford-Perth running about double the number of animals they had around this time last year. And for the first time that Calla can ever remember in her more than a decade's experience in the industry, more dogs than cats currently up for adoption. Even if you're just going to do a little bit of cyber slacking to brighten your day, uh, I would strongly endorse kwsphumane.ca. Hazel is a cutie. So is Thor. 
and Nova and Norbert and Finito and Ruby and Buddy and Patches and Susie and Blue. I could go on and on. Honestly, I want all of these dogs. Maybe, and, and I, will, I will say this, as somebody who came to dogs late in life, I was in my 40s before I had my first dog in a house. And it was, I, it was beyond comprehension to me, the amount of work. I was absolutely blown away. It just, so I'm, I'm just being honest with you about that. If you've considered it before, like it is an amount of work that I can't even possibly explain. However, the reward is also impossible to explain. You will, in my opinion, never regret one second of the time you spend with that dog. Not one second, but it, it's, it's a lot of work. But if you can commit to that, and of course it gets a little bit easier after the initial stages of, you know, getting used to one another. But it is a pretty hellacious six months to a year in terms of the commitment. But, oh my goodness gracious, is it worth it in the long run for sure. You won't regret a second of it. KWSPHumane.ca. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Last summer, we did report numerous times that we were over 240 animals in care. So we do have a little bit of that space now. But of course, when we're also talking about capacity, we have to think about things of surgery capacity and medical capacity and funding, too. So there's lots of ways that we take a look at that. Calla James is the Director of Community Engagement and Outreach at the Humane Society of Kitchener-Waterloo and Stratford-Perth. I will encourage you again to check out their website, kwsphumane.ca. And there are dozens of dogs up for adoption currently. And they are all the cutest little dogs that you will, and sometimes bigger dogs, that you will ever want to see. And maybe, just maybe, you can find room in your home for Patches or Blue or Blitz or Dancer. Go to kwsphumane.ca. Check it out for yourself. Uh, Things in this community, as the end of that commercial break reminded you, do matter to me. And they matter to you as well. And I'm thinking back on a former host on this very station with this very show, the late, great Jeff Allen, who, when I was just beginning to learn the ropes as a talk show host, he would instill the occasional pearl of wisdom in me, one of which was, dog poop on the sidewalk, Mike. Actually, he called me the little leprechaun. But anyway, dog poop on the sidewalk, you little leprechaun, because that's what matters a lot to people. If they see that sort of thing in their community, it affects them. And so I take you to a buddy of mine who runs uh, a really good Twitter account, Bar Rescue KW. And he shared on Twitter the other day the following PSA. Went for a walk uptown this morning ahead of Winterloo and seeing the amount of garbage coming out of the snowbank tomb of what, all of two weeks? Be better, people. It's just gross what people do to their community. And don't think you're getting off easy, city of Waterloo. You've got overflowing garbage cans for days, too. Corner of Princess and Regina, Regina and Spurline Trail since at least Wednesday. End of rant. And follow that to a story done by Jeff Pickle, who actually used to work with us here at City News 570, is now over at CTV Kitchener. 
And he covered this story of the overflowing garbage cans in Uptown yesterday and covered it very well. Our friend uh, Desi Fatkin from the Duke of Wellington Uptown was featured in the story. And if you're missing Sonny's Drive-In, which long-standing iconic burger joint demolished the other day. We knew it had been closed. We knew this was coming, but it still hits when it gets demolished. Try the Big Ben over at the the Duke. I, it'll be a pretty nice replacement. Trust me on that. Anyway, Jeff Pickle's story. I, I, I had to do this because I've known Jeff as long as I have, and I even had to rewind the TV a little bit so I could take the screenshot and send it to him, and it worked out perfectly because he finished his story by walking in the camera shot towards an overflowing garbage can. And the screenshot that I managed to take a photo of and send to Jeff had his hand almost as if he was about to try to squash the little poop bag that was on top of the overflowing garbage can. When I was speaking with Calla James from the Humane Society, we're talking about dogs. It just made me think about all of these things, the rant shared on social media. And a good point made that, hey, cities... If your garbage cans are overflowing, you need to do better as well. It reminds me of the beginning of spring in 2023 when we had boulevards for days that were not being, I mean, you could see them for days. They hadn't been cut in weeks. Overgrown boulevards all over the community making it look less aesthetically appealing. It doesn't make you feel good walking around in it. And Jeff's story last night on the 6 o'clock news on CTV Kitchener, really showed it well. I've never understood, going back to what Jeff Allen said, dog poop on the sidewalk, you little leprechaun. I don't understand how you provide trash receptacles and then do not keep them emptied regularly enough because it looks like just, it's just awful. It's just awful. City says it's working on addressing this. I hope that it does because... If not for Bar Rescue KW on Twitter putting out the rant and the story getting picked up for a little bit of action, I'm not sure we would see the action. It's it's a pretty simple thing, right? Let's keep our community as clean as a kitchen. I've broadened that. It used to be just Kitchener. Let's just make it region-wide, okay? Because I don't think there's any excuse for that sort of thing. If you're going to provide the receptacles, make sure they are maintained at a level so that they're not overflowing and quite frankly, looking disgusting. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. We are moments away from an update in the City News Centre and then a conversation about supportive housing of Waterloo, an organization that we've talked about on the show before, but not in near long enough. I love the work that they do and how and why they do it. So we'll get some background on that and also talk about an upcoming fundraiser called Coldest Night of the Year that will allow us to help show continue to do the work that it does so well in this community. And don't forget as well, in 30 minutes time, open phone lines for your 12 o'clock talkback hour. All of this part of the Mike Farwell show this morning on City News 570 and Rogers TV.
I think I would be so bold as to suggest that our next guest and I have just become friends because the first time we had a conversation, it was at his place, so to speak, of work. Now, Brian Paul, the executive director at Supportive Housing Waterloo, sits across from me in my studio. My turn to host my friend, Brian. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's <laughs> great you, to be here. It's great to have you here so we can have the opportunity to talk about the work that you do, which was what led to our first conversation at your building on Herb Street in Kitchener. But can you tell me more about what show is all about? Show Supportive Housing in Waterloo is the affordable housing piece with on-site support. So it's 24-7 supports. Uh, the affordable housing piece is very important. But when you're working with individuals who have such significant challenges, uh, mental health uh, physical health challenges, addiction challenges, they need that on-site support to help them reach their greatest potential, ultimate well-being. We house individuals coming from the shelters, the encampments, people who have been living on the streets for years, and to give them just the affordable housing is not enough. They need that intensive case management and support. So that's what we do. And uh, we have three buildings. We operate uh, three buildings along Herb Street in in Waterloo and uh you know, we house individuals who, who need that support and assistance to really um, achieve everything they want to do. There is, it's my sense anyway, Brian, a stability and a permanency to what you offer through show. And that it just makes me wonder, because you mentioned encampments, you mentioned shelters, where show kind of fits into the spectrum, if you will, of availability we have for space for yeah. folks who are on the margins. So we, are not, we do not provide transitional housing. It is permanent housing. People sign leases. They are protected under the Residential Tenancy Act, and they can stay as long as they want. I would say the thing that separates us from some of the other incredible work that others are doing in the, in the sector is that we, um, we are seen of, as housing of, as, uh, of last resort, and we provide people hope, an opportunity to finally achieve some sense of stability and to deal uh, with the challenges they've had and the trauma they've had, the experience of living on the streets for so long is incredibly traumatic. So hope, but also safety, waking up in the morning, knowing you don't have to, you're not going to be asked to leave, you know, waking up and knowing this is my home, you know, giving people a sense of belonging, inclusion, community, and ultimately a family. That's what supportive housing is. When we first met on your home turf, so to speak, at one of the buildings on Herb Street, it wasn't long after a story had appeared in the Waterloo Region record about an older gentleman who, had it not been for show, supportive housing of Waterloo, would have been on the streets homeless. And and I don't think we think enough. And that story in the local newspaper got me thinking about seniors who found themselves unable to afford accommodations today. That's another gap, let's say, that show is filling. It is older adults, 60, 65 plus, is the fastest growing demographic in the shelter system. And for many of them, they are experiencing homelessness for the very first time. Imagine how frightening that must be for them. So we took one of our buildings at 144 Herb Street East and in May of last year, converted it into senior supportive housing, for lack of a better term. I mean, it's housing individuals, older adults, 60 plus, who are coming from the shelter system. There's a story of one individual we just housed was living with his daughter. She got married. 
They bought a townhouse in, in Brantford and no space for him. He ends up in a shelter. That's how quickly things can turn. He was never, he had never experienced homelessness ever before. And these are the type of individuals who we are housing in that seniors supportive housing building. So we are the first organization in, in the region to dedicate a building to housing this demographic. As you said, there's a blind spot. There's a gap in the system. Uh, and we stepped up to fill it. But we, you know, as providers, uh, we know more, more supportive housing needs to be built. And it just doesn't come online fast enough. And nor does affordable housing, nor does any of the other. It doesn't seem like certainly in this housing crisis. I want to drill in a little further, though, on supportive housing. What kind of housing are we talking about when we say supportive housing? So we tailor a support plan that's specific and unique to each individual person their own needs, their own goals. So whatever it is they need from us, it could be helping them get reconnected with family, helping them get a job, helping them get integrated into a new community because we house people from all over the region, from Cambridge, from KW, um, you know, or to finally help them navigate and deal with the trauma, the addictions challenges they've been facing, the mental health issues they've been facing for so long. We, we develop and and that support plan is tailored to each individual person. So it's really when they come in, uh, someone moves in a show, we often, um, we just let them sleep, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like for, for a couple of weeks. We don't engage with them. It takes a long time for them to wake up in the morning to feel like this is my place. We had one resident tell me his first morning in show, at show, he was afraid to leave because his fear was when he left, he'd come back and his stuff would be gone because of the amount of times his stuff had been stolen for the amount of times he had been beaten up, the abuse that he had taken on the street. Um, and he, he called his worker when he came back. He said, my stuff's still here. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, so that's what support is. It really is wide range. It could be helping someone who's in crisis, mental health, physical health crisis, or just having someone there to talk to. And it's that wide spectrum that's so important. I've learned the power of having someone there just to say good morning. I had a resident tell me, what I love about this place is you don't ask anything of me. You just want to engage with me and you are there for me and that is support to me. And I thought that was really powerful. Are there any services provided or required, Brian, when it comes to addictions, rehabilitation, etc.? So what we do is the, the housing stability system in the region is an interconnected network. So we rely on the uh, uh, collaborations and partnerships with a wide range of, of amazing workers and support services. So if we don't have the expertise in-house, we will broker those services out. So Sanguine, the Working Center, House of Friendship, Luther, we have incredible partnerships with all of these organizations. So we will bring the support to the residents. Uh, we have a team of housing support workers, but they, uh, when we need specialized services, we will bring it in. We have a, a healthcare clinic, so we actually bring. We have a partnership with Healthcare in KW, and they will actually bring in a doctor and a nurse. So we bring the services in to the residents, and we're always engaging, always asking, "Is there something we don't have here that you need?" I mean, we also provide a, a, a long list of uh, social recreational programs to help our residents feel engaged and connected to their community, but also their neighbors, the people next door to them. So it's a, it's full 
you may have heard the term wraparound support. It's all of that. It's really intensive support, but it's really specific to each person. How are you able to identify the folks that are in need of or benefit from the housing you provide at show? So we do not have a wait list at show. Our wait list is managed by Lutherwood. It is a master wait list. It's called coordinated access. So all of the supportive housing providers in the region when they have a vacancy, they get it from that centralized wait list. So it's a by-need list. So we are funded to provide support to the hardest to house, the individuals with the highest, we call it acuity or needs, those individuals who have, um, have had housing, have lost housing, who have got it again and have lost it again. It's that sort of vicious cycle of homelessness. And um, so we are, we are staffed in, in our job and we are funded to house the hardest in the region to house. You are funded, yes, but you also need to fundraise in order to keep doing the work that you do. I know a big fundraiser is coming up in about a month's time, and I want to talk to you about that, but we're up against the clock. We'll take a quick break, come back with more with Brian Paul, who's the Executive Director at Supportive Housing of Waterloo. Stay with us. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Continuing our conversation in studio with Brian Paul, who's the executive director at Supportive Housing of Waterloo, a a great explainer thus far on what Supportive Housing of Waterloo does and how it does it. We just before the break, Brian, we're talking about how, yes, you are funded, but fundraising becomes an equally important part of continuing to provide the housing and the services that you do. So to that end, in late February, just under a month from now, coldest night of the year. What can you tell us about it? So it is, uh, yes, Saturday, uh, February 24th, uh, our big fundraising event of the year, coldest night of the year. It's a it's a walk to advocate and support the community's most vulnerable. Uh, you mentioned fundraising. We, we rely uh, on uh, about 25% of our revenues generated through fundraising. So it's an important piece of what we do. This is, is, an, is an amazing event. Um, it's, uh, the, 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 it's a national event. It's the country's largest national walk. So there are 166 communities participating in this. And uh, you know, all have local uh, events planned. And uh, this is our third year doing it as the designated Waterloo uh, organization, and uh, it's a it's a great event. It's a family friendly event. It's free to participate. Uh, we are expecting over two hundred walkers this year, so this is a big thing for us. It starts at um, at, uh, at First United Church at King and R- William, and then we are walking up to Columbia. It's five k, and then back. Highly visible, right up and down King. We all will have a. Uh, Fancy white toques on with pom poms on the top, and and it's a great event. It's a it's a highlight a need to rally the community. It's such an amazing event, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It really is. What does the money that you raise help you do? Where does it go at show? St- so uh, staffing, providing the services and support that we provide, uh, maintenance. Our residents can be quite hard on our buildings, uh, you know, uh, training, professional development, all of the things we do at show 
we rely on fundraising to help support all, everything we do. So it's those those things where we rely on the fundraising to generate revenue for us. You mentioned during our commercial break that last year you managed to raise $50,000 with this event, which is a magnificent number from where I'm sitting. Uh, you're increasing that goal even a little bit more this year. We're aiming for 65 this year. Uh, baby steps for us as our third year. I think I think we're underselling ourselves a bit. I mean, I look at our numbers so far, and we're as as a team, we're quite overwhelmed already. But we have a lot of work to do, and like you said, it's it's, it's just under a month away, and uh, a real opportunity um, to 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 bring the community together. There's so many incredibly generous uh, people in in the region, and I've met so many amazing people in my time as ED, and it's about getting the word out right now and saying, you know, you may not know about this, uh, you may know about us, uh, but this is an amazing event, and we would love to have you come join us. The walk starts at 4. We do the walk. It, you, don't, you do not have to do the full 5K. You can turn around and, and go back to First United whenever you want. <laughs> there, are, there is signage along the way. And then at the end, we have an amazing meal where we have a meal together and uh, we'll have things where it's to make it a family-friendly event, a photo booth and things like that. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you reinforced the opportunity for one to, you know, if they wish, they can, they can bail partway through the route. When we talked about it and you mentioned it goes from King and William to King and Columbia and then back. So that's a 5K round trip. Right. Yep, that's, okay. That's right. But in my mind's eye, Brian, that felt like really that's a long hike. But five k, I think that's pretty manageable. You mentioned those two hundred people that are already ready to go, uh, and gosh, I wish I could be there with you. I have to be up in Sault Ste. Marie for my hockey duties here on the radio station, so I won't be. But I'm going to put out the challenge to any member of our business community who might just be learning about this and hopefully getting a better understanding of what show is doing because I'm sure along with the individual and team support, which is great, corporate support matters a lot too. Absolutely it does. So I can give you our website where you can go to sign up. So it is www.showwaterloo.org. So that's S-H-O, waterloo.org. And you go to the Your Impact tab and then it's under special events. And you can start a team, you can join a team, and if you're a business, you can sponsor. You can provide a sponsorship to show. So there's a whole bunch of different ways, amazing ways that you can participate. And um, and, and like I said, this is really uh, our big fundraising event, and we really want to lean into making this an amazing event for, for, for show and for the community. How impactful, though, just by the name of it, doing it in late February, the coldest night of the year, a good opportunity for us as we do that 5K walk, which will probably take an hour-ish, to reflect on the meal and the family-friendly activities we're going to have at the end. But there are so many people living unsheltered in our community that don't have that luxury. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the strategy behind having it at this time of the year. We see the hurt and the hunger in people's eyes. We see people suffering when we're walking down the street. Uh, on my way into work, I don't know how many stoplights I was at, and there was there were people standing there. So there are people in really tough places. I can tell you that our wait list has almost tripled since 2017. So the need is is getting even is increasing exponentially. So we need uh, to step up. And I there are so many amazing people in our community, and we want to lean into that. Uh, but this is a challenging time of year. People are are, are really suffering. And you can see it in their eyes as you walk by them on the streets, right? So this is a real opportunity for us to highlight that need and advocate on their behalf. Absolutely. And then 
encourage us to participate. You make it easy. All we have to do is show up. So showwaterloo.org, that's S-H-O waterloo.org to, and then find it's the event. Under your impact and then the special events tab. Perfect. Coldest night of the year, Saturday, February the 24th, and things will start at 4 o'clock at King & William. Brian, it's great to have you here. Keep up the great work. Give my best to Leanne and the rest of the team. <laughs> I will. And uh, appreciate you making time for the Thank show. Thank you so much, Mike. Brian Paul joining us in studio, the Executive Director at Supportive Housing of Waterloo. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Oh, my goodness. I'm going back to the very beginning of the show when Andre called and reminded me it's a busy show for busy people. When you say that, you got to snap your fingers and throw your arms out to either side. Former boss of mine used to say that. Loved that guy. Great to work for. Busy show for busy people, Farwell. And I feel that way as we approach the noon hour, an update from the City News Centre and the end of our time with Rogers TV Cable 20. I assume we had time with Rogers TV Cable 20 today. Our TVs in the radio station are out of commission. They, they can power on, but I'm not, I don't know. So, somebody call Larry the Cable Guy. We'll get this stuff sorted out. But nonetheless, uh, to Robert and the entire team for producing the TV side of this show, thank you very much for doing that. We'll be back with Rogers between 10 and noon tomorrow. And as I mentioned, we're going to send you now to the City News Center for an update. And then... It is that time, the 12 o'clock talk back hour, when we open the phone lines to hear from you, and Grant is already in the queue. You can be a part of it, too. The conversation is led by you for the next 60 minutes on City News 570, and so long, Rogers TV. Take out the papers and the trash. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that broom. Get all that garbage outside. Or you don't go out Friday night. Don't talk back. Please do talk right back. Direct the conversation. Call me and have a chat. 519-570-2545. Star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. The 12 o'clock talkback hour is underway, and we start with Grant. Good afternoon, Grant. Yeah, good afternoon. And, I, yeah, that uh, last guest, he's, he's not wrong when he said that all these individuals want is someone to ha- listen to them. Uh, I... As I used to help out at this drop-in center that the work, working center kind of got going a number a long, long time ago, and then the church took over. And there were there was one individual in there. Uh, the pastor took him out for dinner, and this fellow said, "All I want is someone to give me a hug." And that this guy, if you didn't know him, he looked kind of scary looking. And I've, like I said, I got to know him. He he would be on the phone, and he he would be really angry, and you just had to kind of, you know, have a chat with him, and then he would 
kind of calmed down. And then there was this other individual. I remember driving down King Street, and he would come to this place quite frequently. I saw some kids uh, teasing him, and I just stopped my car and yelled out at the guys and to leave him alone, and they left him alone. And this, this, this is an. It's too bad they don't do this uh, out of the cold program like they did when they first started off, where where you had to spend the night out in the cold to raise money. I like that. That was kind of it. It gave you a little bit more of an outlook of what it's gonna, of what it's like to sleep in frigid temperatures, right? Absolutely, Grant. I think that's a really good point, and I'll just remind you again of what we talked about with Brian Paul, who was with us in the last half hour, the Executive Director of Supportive Housing of Waterloo. That walk, the coldest night of the year walk on February the 24th, look, we don't know what the weather is going to be like then. I guess if you're less inclined to enjoy the cold like me, you'd hope it's like this. But when you're out there, for about an hour walking up and down King Street from King and William to King and Columbia as part of that fundraising event. It will allow you the opportunity to reflect on those who are not dressed the same as you are and who do not get to go home at the end of that walk. It's kind of what it's all about. But your point around that gentleman who just wanted a hug or some of these other folks that you got to meet through your volunteerism, I think is spot on. It reminds me of a story we got yesterday in a different context, but the idea is we're a lot more alike than we are different. And yes, they can look scary. They can be intimidating when we don't know them. But get to know them, and you'll find that they are just the same as you and me. They want a little bit of social connection. They want a little bit of security. And I don't think that should be too much for anybody to ask. So I'll remind you again, showwaterloo.org. That's S-H-O Waterloo. Dot .org and check it out maybe you want to register a team or sponsor a team or something for the coldest night of the year on February the 24th it's a Saturday Jersey Bill the 12 o'clock talk back hour over to you Yes well you know hey you you mentioned something in the, the last half hour that really hit me and that is that when I when I started calling in and listening to your station it was Jeff Allen and Gary Doyle I didn't know that Jeff had died Yes, sadly, it's uh, well over a year, and it might even be two. I'm sorry, time gets all jumbled up in my brain. But yes, we have since lost Jeff. Yeah, well, you know what? And uh, it was it was it was great being able to uh, interact with him. You know, and it, it just you know, as I'm getting older, you know, I have to deal with these losses that are recurring uh, rather frequently. Um, but actually, uh, I must say that uh, yesterday I was finally able to connect to. Uh, that other person who's involved with the uh, with the board gaming hobby I'm trying to get involved with who lives in town. He also is a listener. He might be listening now, so I'll say hello, James. It was, it was, it's great at my age to make new connections and also to have the, the, the ability to uh, continue to uh, have this connection with you, and uh, I do appreciate that. Uh, uh, and, and one other thing, I just, you know, as, as we see in the world now, I just this really hits me a, a bit because I spent most of my army career in the Army Reserve. And the three Americans who 
were sent out there in, in, in the very, very dangerous circumstances. There were only 2,500 of them, and that makes it more dangerous for them. And, and uh, one was a, a staff sergeant, the other two were young enlisted people, and they were they were killed in this recent raid. I hope for the best, but uh, that sort of hits me hard as well. Billy, I appreciate you more than I can say. Thank you for the call, and thank you for being one of those longstanding connections. I had the chance through Farwell for Hire to meet Billy in person, clean the windows at his home, and then we sat down to dinner, Billy, his wife, and I, and it's fantastic. But even just this connection, I'm glad you feel it as well. And that's what I really like about the 12 o'clock talkback hour, where we can just kind of gather around and have our conversation for the day, provide a connection to one another. I look forward to it. I hope you do too. So keep the calls coming during the 12 o'clock talkback hour. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Among other things on the show today, I had the chance to share with you a story that was shared by a mother in our community who was trying to get the emergency hospital care she needed for her daughter. And it was a pretty gut-wrenching story. I have an email from Linda who is echoing that appendicitis story, and I'll get to the email in a moment. But boy, oh boy. And we're going to get Julia Malott, who is the mother in question, uh, on the show tomorrow to talk more about it. And, and I love the way she put her story together because she made it clear that she's not holding responsible the hardworking, dedicated, and talented hospital workers at both St. Mary's and Grand River where she went through this ordeal, but she's looking at the system more systemically and trying to affect some sort of change. Maybe you've got uh, a story similar that you've experienced of late. I, I'm always reluctant to make it sound as though the entire system is virtually collapsing, but goodness gracious me, it's hard sometimes to think that it's not. And when I heard Julia's story earlier today, all I could think about is, what if that was my kid, and what if that was me? Because I can't even imagine when you need the care the most, it not being there for you. Let's get back to the phones on this 12 o'clock talk back. Mark, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. Uh, uh, hundreds call, I think. Your hundredth call? I, I think I've been calling you like a hundred times. Oh, you, I, it might even be more than that. But you're, you, right. you're one of those connections that I am so grateful for, my friend. It's great to hear from you. Okay. Did you catch up on your sleep, Mike? I, I tried. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you, Mark. I went home yesterday, About uh, got home a little after three, took a little nap before dinner. <laughs> you get up and nap before the game tonight? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'm, I, I'm feeling pretty caught up. And besides, if I'm a little bit underslept, I'll be a little bit crankier tonight. And, and I want to be cranky. Probably, and you're probably a bit pumped, right? I'm getting pumped. Yeah, I mean, it's the big rivalry, right? And I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of annoyed with that uh, that entire city west of us right now. So I know. Yeah, I know. yeah. So one thing I want to say, though, Mike. Yes, sir. I, I'm glad you always bring up uh, Jeff Allen the odd time. I used to listen to him all the time. So did I. He was such a, a fun guy, um, 
I listened to him all the time. And yes, he had issues. But one of his favorite sayings, I'll never forget it, in the wintertime, when it was lots of snow, he'd say the snow banks are three far, far walls high. <laughs> and I, I still remember that, and I always laughed when he said it. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. I'm pretty sure that was actually Gary Doyle who came up with snowbanks that were three farwells high. But yeah, listen, I'm not going to shy away from mentioning Jeff's name and Gary's name and the people that have helped me along the path in my career to ascend to this mighty throne where I sit today. I jest, of course, but yeah, I, I will gladly talk about those people who helped me along the way earlier in my career, the people who may have helped me just by the opportunity I had to listen to them and ask them some questions. Yeah, they were great to me. And I could go back even further if you ever want me to go down that rabbit hole. And there are so many others. Uh, I've been very fortunate, and I'm fully aware of that in this community, from the people that mentored me, whether they knew it or not, and who have helped me along the way uh, directly as well. It's a great place to make a living in this business, for sure. Terry, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Mike. Uh, did you take a 20% pay cut uh, on your show now? Because there's 30, 30 minutes less uh, on-air content now. Uh, I'm still doing 9 to 1 every day, pal. I know, but the actual on-air content, you know, I think you've lost half hour. Have I? Well, that's what, I see. that's what it appears on the podcast when you check, when they take out all the commercials and news breaks. But anyway, that's not why I'm calling, Mike. I'm just curious. Um, they haven't taken money away yet, but Terry, don't give them any ideas, please. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> Thank just, you. Keep, keep it under, under your hat. Hey, okay. Mike, I, I was listening to Andre this morning. Now, I know the Rangers currently are fourth in the Western Conference. Yes, sir. That would be the perfect place for them to finish. I'll tell you why. Because come playoff time, they'll be playing the Guelph Storm if things end up the way they are now. And I love hearing you and Walter banter back and forth. Walter, <laughs> oh, my gosh, you know, yes. Because, you know, Walter is the eternal optimist when it comes to the Guelph Storm, even though I don't think Guelph would have a snowball's chance, you know, where beating the Rangers in a playoff round. But uh, this would be perfect. You get a week or, or two weeks of this bantering between you and him. That'd be great entertainment. And listen, Mike... The Rangers don't necessarily have to finish first. I'm going to tell you why. You don't get a blue ribbon for finishing first. And ask the Windsor Spitfires how well finishing first worked out for them last year. That's true. That's true. So let's, let's hope they I – I just want to see Guelph and Kitchener in the playoffs, <laughs> playoff series. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. No, just, just so I can listen to Walter, you, you and Walter go back and forth. Anyway, Mike, have a good day and, uh, and hope for a good game tonight. Let's cut out that crap from two weeks or two weekends ago. Uh, Amen to that. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, good luck, good luck tonight, Mike, and, and go Rangers. Thanks, Terry. I like that last sentiment, go Rangers for sure. I hadn't even thought of the opportunity to verbally joust with Walter should it be a Kitchener-Guelph playoff series. How about verbally jousting with Cam Guthrie, the mayor of Guelph? He's a big Storm fan, too. I'll go toe-to-toe with him. He might, you know, have the upper hand, but I'll, I'll take my best shot. And if I'm being honest with you, I think given the injury woes that Guelph is still struggling with, it might be Owen Sound in fifth place. Anyway, we're getting a little too far ahead of ourselves. Rangers nights tonight, if you can't make it to the barn, join us right here on City News 570. Paul Fixter and I will have pregame coverage starting at 6.35. Rangers nights start at 7. And then after that, Rangers talk, where we break down the whole game, talk about the league, share some stories, you name it. We've got you covered from about 6.30 till 11 tonight. 
with junior hockey. A quick break and back with more of your 12 o'clock talk back on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Oh, is it my turn to talk again? I had a caller on the line earlier that I guess couldn't wait. And Alec, I'm really sorry for that. I hope that you might still be out there and you might still consider giving us a call back during the 12 o'clock talk back at 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. Alec is not a name I'm overly familiar with on the show. I was thinking it might be another one of our first-time callers. You know I love first-time callers. Yes! 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 If you want to be one of those first-time callers, you know how to reach us here on the 12 o'clock talkback. An everyday caller like Kyle, though, he knows how to get through even on the 1-800 line. Hey, buddy. Hey, I was just calling for the uh, 12 o'clock uh, request lunch hour. No, that's, oh my gosh, the all request lunch. I love it. Mark tried to sneak one of those in. Listen, this is not AM 109 from back in the day. I'm pretty sure that's where we used to have the all request lunch in this time, in this town. No, no, I remember those days. Hey, um, I was going to say, going back to the healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, I would I would agree with you. I don't think it's 100% collapsing, but I think there's definitely things that we can improve on. And I know people kind of hate the word, privatized or semi-privatized and you know it's one of those words that yes i guess it kind of could shake up a lot of people but don't forget if we have an issue where you're waiting three four even five hours that i've had to just to get stitches on my finger because of a workplace accident i don't think that's something that a lot of people want to wait so maybe going to a semi-private healthcare system where people could afford or those upper cl- uh, middle class or the higher class could afford to go and pay the extra money to get stitches then the people that are, you know, that can't afford the healthcare system that are, or that can't afford to pay for the privatized, that are on the government system like our, our, our healthcare system, we pay for their taxes. Maybe that's something that we should implement to kind of alleviate even the backlog that we have in, in our current system we have now. I don't know. There's so many ideas, but I agree with you. I think that we're not exactly collapsing, but there's definitely improvements that we could definitely work on. So there you go, Mike. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate the call. And I would echo that. Along with, we know there are problems here, and I personally don't see a lot being done to address the problems. And that's where my greatest concern lies. I mentioned that I have an email from Linda to get to, who has an appendicitis story to echo the one from Julia Malott, who shared hers on social media earlier today. I will make sure you get to hear that again as well before 1 o'clock because it is important to hear this story about what Julia and her daughter had to experience as they tried to get emergency care. Uh, Just before we send you to the City News Center for an update, Ron sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. So how's the studio? As a longtime listener, I need to know how hot is that studio. Do we have another round of naked Farwell because he's too hot under the collar? I have to ask since you haven't talked about it in some time. Ron, thank you for the email. I haven't talked about it in some time because there was a lot of work. And I do mean a lot of work. There were ladders. There were things I can't describe to wreck. There was a lot of work going on. A lot of people, computers, software, programs, updates, I don't know what to call the things they put over the vents in this studio to flush them out. I I can't describe the stuff. I don't know how it all works, but there was a lot of work being done. 
And they insisted to me things are all back to normal now. And you know what? Until today, I would have agreed. But currently, 79.5 in the studio. That is Fahrenheit. I'm, that puts us close to, what, 25, 26 Celsius? They're, I, don't, I don't know what they're trying to do to me, Ron. Tell me I'm too fat and I need to sweat off a few pounds. I'm sweating off a few pounds. Trust me on that. You made me bring it up. But it's going to be naked Farwell by 1 o'clock if this doesn't get a little cooler in here. It's the Mike Farwell Show. Thanks to my handy-dandy temperature calculator, 79.5 Fahrenheit translates to 26.4 Celsius. They are indeed trying to sweat me out of here as we continue with the 12 o'clock talkback hour. Give us a call at 519-570-2545, star 570, or 1-800-570-5715. Joel, good afternoon. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Now, Kyle, he actually made a solution, which is better than I could probably do. But um, I got one thing with that. With doctors, so the people are going to pay, the rich people, the middle class, the upper class, they're going to pay the doctors. Are more doctors that are currently in the public uh, sector, are they going to switch over and go to the private where they can make more money, have what they might think would be better customers, more pay, and then leave all the crap and terrible doctors who really just don't care about money. They're coming from who knows. They don't really have as best uh, knowledge as some of these smart doctors do that could go and they can make way more money than they could at the Publix. And it, I feel like it just might be a little negative, and a little unfair for those who are a little less fortunate than others. You know what, Joel? I think you're bang on with that. And it's one of the greatest concerns around the idea of privatization. Here's something interesting that it makes me think about, though, and this might not be true across the board, but a friend of mine's uh, now ex-partner, but had taught in the public school system in Ontario and went to a private school and made way less money, which is strange, but the private system was paying way less, at least in education. Yeah, I, see, I don't know. You have to think about how the doctors and how all the nurses and all the staff would be paid. Would they be paid directly from the customers and the clients and the patients, or would they be paid from the business, the hospital they're working at? That's, we, we don't really have Well, and then Joel's phone abandoned us. I, I think it's a very justifiable concern, Joel, and I hear where you're coming from. And I, I don't, I'm not here to say that privatization at any level is a solution, certainly not the solution. But I will say again that we know there are problems and what I don't see is a whole lot of activity around solving them. That's my sense from where I'm sitting. Bob, it's the 12 o'clock talk back. Good afternoon. Morning, Mike. How are you? Afternoon, Bob. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good. Um, I won't pick on Dougie or Pierre today. I'll give you a bit of a break. Okay. But I want to talk, I just seen an advertise yesterday, and I think it's one of the worst All-Star games around, and it's coming up this weekend, and it's a hockey All-Star game. I mean, it doesn't, you don't really have any defense in it. You, all, you, all you do is people are running up the scores, and it doesn't really represent the game. Baseball, it does. I think baseball is the best All-Star, All-Star game going. You're 100% right. And they, what do you think they could do to make it a little, make a little more represent the game? I think they should stop playing it. Yeah, 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because you can't. Because everybody's afraid they might get hurt at the All-Star game. So you just have to give it up. What about you had, had the two top teams at the time going against each other? Again, if it's a non-league game, the concern's always just going to be, what if somebody gets That's, hurt? Yeah. yeah. So I just don't know. I don't know how you square that circle, Bob. But I agree with you. It's a It's a goofy showcase, really. Unless you just make it a skills competition, just do that. Don't even bother playing a game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, have a good day, Mike. Thanks, Bob. You too. Nice to hear from you. It takes me back to an email we got earlier from Katie wondering uh, my thoughts on the winner of the skills competition being awarded a $1 million prize. And Katie's like, hang on, these players make an average of $3.5 million a year. Why are they getting another million dollars? Why doesn't that turn into a donation to uh, the city and the food bank in that city where the team plays? I don't know. It's not a bad question because why do millionaires need more millions just because they're the best at doing whatever it is in the skills competition? I want to share with you, in case you missed it earlier, and this has been making the rounds of social media today, and I'm glad that it has because it's an important story to share about a first-hand experience in our healthcare system here in Ontario, and in fact, our system right here in the region of Waterloo. This is mom, Julia Malott, sharing the story of her daughter's attempt to have her appendicitis tended to in our local hospitals. I'm recording this from outside Grand River Hospital in Kitchener where my daughter is currently having surgery. I haven't slept since Sunday morning. Neither has my child because we've been fighting with the hospital this entire time because we couldn't even get a bed for her to lie down in and relieve her pain for more than 15 hours. I have laid out the first 13 hours of my hospital stay from hell in a post I wrote in desperate rage, quite literally, from the St. Mary's Hospital waiting room. When I wrote that post, we had already confirmed that she had appendicitis and that she needed emergency surgery, and yet we were being asked to sit for an indefinite period of time in the ER waiting room, sitting, you know, pushing against one's appendix. See, we started our stay with an ER bed, but by 5 a.m. that morning, it was taken away from us because apparently somebody else needed it. So my daughter was forced to sit in the waiting room, putting more pressure on her appendix, which may very well have ruptured at any moment. And we do this for hours and hours just to get an ultrasound. And then we get the ultrasound and it's confirmed that she has appendicitis, but we continue to sit in that same chair for many hours more because there is no space to transfer her to the other hospital that can perform the surgery that she needs. So we have this sick child who's under immense pain, but rather than help her rest, she's left all night in the waiting room, sitting and causing more pain, and my requests for beds are denied. And my request to take her home to her own bed is also denied because she needs surgery. But they can't say whether surgery will come in minutes or hours or even that day. So we just keep sitting. And while she's sitting, she's on an IV line and she periodically gets pain suppressants when we complain enough to get a scraping of attention from the hospital staff. She's also starving and thirsty, but she's not allowed to have any food because she might have surgery at any moment or maybe never. And look, for those of us who live in Ontario, all I'm describing is the healthcare system that we know and hate. I just skimmed my experience here, but if you want the whole long story, then go find it in my post on Twitter. Now look, this isn't the fault of St. Mary's Hospital, and it isn't the fault of Grand River either. This isn't the doctors or the nurses or the triage volunteers. They were all working so hard. They were all overworked. I know that this building is filled with good, quality, caring healthcare professionals, but they had no breath for my daughter's need. To get my daughter actual care, I had to push and push and cross the lines of propriety that I am not proud to say I crossed. So to Premier Doug Ford and Health Minister Sylvia Jones and to every politician in this country, we can fix this. 
We need to fix this. Ford didn't break this, but neither did the liberals before him. I'm 33 years old and this healthcare system has been crumbling my entire life. It's not a liberal problem and it's not a conservative problem. It's just a problem. And we would all benefit so much if we just took healthcare seriously, valued our nurses, valued our doctors, and gave them the resources and the staffing levels that they need to succeed. So I beg of you, can we please find a solution, real solutions, not talk and jabber about how 10 years from now we're gonna build a new hospital. Let's do it now. Now. Let's solve it now because these are real lives. These are real families. These are real children who are suffering. These are real elderly folk who are suffering. And we can do better for all of them. And quite honestly, we have no excuse not to be. We have no excuse not to be doing better. Julia Malott sharing that video essay on social media early this morning. That's about half of its entirety. You can see the whole thing via my Twitter at Farwell underscore WR. And we continue the conversation during the 12 o'clock talk back. This is City News 570. It is the 12 o'clock talk back where the best thing to hear is your voice on the program. But first to an email following up because. Linda says, I just heard Julia Malott's story about her daughter. I had a similar experience last June. This email written to Mike at 570news.com. I'm 66 years old and have had, and, and I had severe abdominal pain on a Friday afternoon. So painful that I couldn't drive home. So my husband drove up to Kitchener to pick me up and drive me to the Cambridge Hospital near our home. We arrived at 6 p.m. and waited nine hours in severe pain just to see the only doctor available sitting up as there was no bed. No pain meds, no water, no relief during those escalating painful hours. The doctor sent us home at 4 a.m. to sleep for a few hours before I was called with an appointment for an ultrasound on Saturday afternoon. They confirmed I had appendicitis and suspected that it might have First, So by 4.30 p.m. Saturday, I was wheeled into surgery. I was sent home at 9 p.m. that night because there were not enough nurses to monitor my recovery. Hardworking and caring doctors and nurses, but just not enough of them. Thank you for sharing your story via email to Mike at 570news.com. Let's go back to the phones. Jason, you're on the 12 o'clock talkback hour. Good morning, Mike. All Good right. day, sir. Good afternoon. <laughs> Good afternoon. Um, so last night uh, we discussed inclusionary zoning at council. What what stuck out to me um, when we were talking about low income housing, low income, low income households, and the definition that we are are looking at is uh, affordable to low income households is earning forty three to sixty five thousand dollars. And how I tie this back to healthcare is most healthcare uh, professionals make about probably forty-four dollars to $45,000 a year on average. That's probably the low, high, maybe 50000 Again, what strikes to what, what points, uh, points, what this points out to me, sorry, is that our healthcare workers are low-income workers. And we want to know why that we are understaffed and, and overworked is because we don't have enough. Um, I actually sent this to a, a friend of mine at uh, my local u- or national union to say, point this out next time you guys are bargaining. You want to know why we are short-staffed? Because our 
workers are low-income workers, and it should not happen in in a civilized, uh, industrialized country like ours that is full of wealth. Uh, but we need to we need to kind of have a pull pull the plug out and reset it like we do with our with our cable box to reset and find actually you know what is actually important to us as Canadians and Ontarians, and I think that's healthcare. Um, but if we continue the way we are, um, robots are going to be looking after us in the next ten years. Jason, I appreciate the call. I feel you, man. I, I've been looking, and I haven't checked in a while, but the median income here in the region of Waterloo was $44,000. Based on the numbers, and, and I say I've been looking, because I use that reference quite a bit, I've been looking for an updated stat, and I haven't found anything more recent, but I haven't checked in a couple of months. But let's just say it remains the same. So the median income being half the people in the community in the region of Waterloo make more than 44000 the other half making less than 44,000. But based on the numbers that Jason just shared, doesn't that show that many of us in this region right now are considered low wage? Even if you're above the median at 44, what happens when you get to 60 or 65? The numbers are out of whack right now. There's no question about that. Kyle, good afternoon. Governor, I just want to go back to that one caller that replied to me. Great, great call. I, um, I would just, you know, after you read that letter, I would definitely say maybe, maybe that's another positive uh, thing to maybe even going semi-private is because we have such a shortage of doctors currently in Ontario, bringing some of those doctors back that have gone to the United States or even other countries that could come here and get medically cleared to get a certificate and teach and, and, and work in the medical field, that would also help alleviate the problem. But I think the only other solution is just get all these callers online that call into your show and maybe they could actually put some use into helping your government with ideas because it seems like there's been a lot of good ones versus what the government's been coming out of. There, that's all i got to say. Thanks, Mike. Okay, Kyle. Appreciate the call. We just we need to have less talk and more action, I think, when it comes to tangible solutions being presented to what are clearly healthcare problems. This is the Mike Farwell Show. It's your 12 o'clock talkback hour on City News 570. We are three minutes away from one, an update from the City News Center. And now, you know, with Rob Snow taking you through until three in the afternoon, we continue with our 12 o'clock talk back. Say good afternoon to David. Hey, David. Oh, hello. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Good. Um, I just wanted to uh, say something about the, the, that some of the prices you're talking about nursing. Sure. Like a personal support worker makes twenty four dollars an hour when he works in a retirement home, and that's forty two thousand dollars a year, I believe. And that's just a personal support worker. Nurses are making way more than that. Registered nurses are likely into the seventies, seventy thousands. I would think. Well, I will say this, and somebody emailed me citing some questions with those wages that were uh, mentioned a moment ago. I know the gentleman that cited those wages between forty-three and sixty-five thousand uh, dollars does work in healthcare. So, I was a personal support worker for nine and a half years. Well, when I when I left, I was making sixteen dollars an hour, but that was uh, ten years ago. Yeah. So you're saying there's more money than what you, what you we've been led to believe. Yes. Yeah. Okay, David. Everybody, and, and also, I was a personal support worker. I went into one of, one of the fellows I took care of 
was in a home. And he had me go in and feed him because he because the people that were in there didn't weren't didn't feed him right. Didn't feed him the way he wanted to be fed. So I had to go into the home and actually uh, feed him in there. As a personal support worker, David, were your wages paid through the provincial health ministry or through an agency? Well, I was. Uh, well, I imagine through the agent through an agency. Right. Right. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. Well, they got their money from the government. Right. That makes sense. And I, I got to cut you there and make sure we stay on time. But it sounds to me like that's what I thought of with, when we've heard about uh, nurses who work through agencies that get placed into hospitals are making more money than the nurses who are there and employed by the hospital. Again, what we're identifying is another one of these hiccups in the big old system that we need to fix. I liked Jason's analogy earlier. Let's just do it like a cable box. Unplug it and reset and see what happens from there. But goodness gracious, we need some creative solutions. All right, as mentioned, I'm going to get you to the City News Centre for an update. I'm going to turn things over to Rob Snow with Now You Know until 3 and then all news afternoons with Paul McPhee and Aaron Anderson coming your way on your favorite radio station here, City News 570. Devin Robertson is our guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Hey, I'll talk to you tonight from the Memorial Auditorium, okay? Bye for now.